Early in the morning on March 28, Dr. Thomas Miller made his way into the White House. He had been called for a follow-up to his recent treatment of President Harrison. First, for what seemed like fatigue, and then the day prior for an onset of chills. Though Miller's patient had seemed recovered the evening prior when Miller had returned to check up on him, Harrison, after not sleeping well, had around midnight, quote, been seized with a violent pain over the right brow and in his right side, from which he still continued to suffer. The pains were intermittent, equally increased by deep inspiration and motion, but not by pressure. He complained of thirst. His tongue was dry, his mouth clammy, his skin warm and moist, pulse eighty and soft, occasionally great nausea. He attributed his pain to the want of an operation from his bowels, which were uneasy. After an enema had been administered, Harrison took, quote, several light naps in the morning and, quote, expressed himself much relieved from the pain in his side and head. The relief, however, would not last long, for the president was a very sick man and, as of half-past noon, had only 156 hours left to live. Welcome to the saddest episode of the Harrison Podcast I've ever done. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. So I'll admit, when I originally started sketching out my ideas for this podcast, I didn't want to talk about Harrison's death. Even when I committed myself to doing an episode on the subject, I kept putting off writing the script for this episode. Death isn't always an easy subject for folks to talk about, especially for those of us who have lost a loved one. I know, I know. It's been 176 years this year since Harrison died, and thus I never came close to knowing him personally. But when I read biographies, presidential or no, when we get to someone's death, it doesn't matter how long ago it was, I still feel a pang of sadness in my heart, and I have been known to get a little misty-eyed at times. Seriously, try reading about James Garfield's last 11 weeks of life after being shot and not wanting to cry. However, to bring in a pop reference quote that I've tried to keep in mind, from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, quote, How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. With that, let's delve into the case of Harrison's death together. The story, the couple of lines that are usually devoted to Harrison's brief presidency and innumerable histories of the time, typically goes something like this. William Henry Harrison was inaugurated on March 4, 1841, and delivered the longest inaugural speech in history on a cold, rainy day while wearing no coat. Shortly after, he developed pneumonia and died after only 30 days in office. I cannot begin to tell you how many times I've seen that. There's one glaring problem with it, though. Now, I'm not a medical expert, nor do I claim to be. However, have you ever known someone to be exposed to the elements, then develop pneumonia from that exposure 22 days later? To be fair, when Dr. Miller originally treated Harrison on the 26th, Harrison did indicate that he had, quote, been somewhat indisposed for several days. But even assuming that several days to have been a week, that still would have been 15 days, over two weeks, between the inauguration and when Harrison began to show any symptoms of ailment. Again, I'm not a medical professional, but something doesn't seem right about that to me. Unfortunately for the general, someone along the line put the inauguration and his death together, and because the hurricane of Harrison's election, as John Quincy Adams so eloquently put it, had died down, no one thought too much about it, and Harrison became to history the fool who didn't put on his coat and died because of it, a cautionary tale that mothers could tell their kids in the cooler parts of the year. It wouldn't be until 2014 that someone would seriously question this story. However, we'll get to that in a few minutes. For the moment, let's return to March 28th, 
though i feel it only fair to warn you as some of his ailments were digestive now may not be a good time to have a snack if you have a weak stomach by half past eleven it seems that the pain in his side had returned as he quote objected to all local applications to his side as had been recommended by miller he was given pills at twelve and two as well as laudan which is a tincture of opium before miller's return at half past two now by this point besides various laxatives harrison had been prescribed mars hydrog which is a compound which contains mercury so not only was harrison taking opium he was now ingesting mercury fantastic it was in miller's examination of harrison in the afternoon of the twenty eighth that the doctor initially made his diagnosis quote, of pneumonia complicated with congestion of the liver but that the acute pain was neurologic prior to this miller seems to have attributed harrison's symptoms to fatigue and constipation but the twenty eighth is the first time in his account that he evidences that he felt there was more going on with harrison after deciding not to bleed him which to doctors since the middle ages was the panacea for all that ails you miller decided to give him twenty drops of laudanum and a pill followed by calomel and ten more drops of laudanum and call in a second opinion dr f may was called in that evening and the two doctors ended up quote, agreeing entirely as to the character of his disease and that the present treatment of laudanum laxative pills and a procedure called cupping which was basically applying a heated glass cup to the body and having it become suctioned onto the skin by the cooling of the glass be continued the next morning miller may would find that harrison had suffered from quote, a slight dry cough during the night as well as some bodily functions which i will not mention here but which were not normal also the pain in his side had become continuous though it was described as a quote, slight dull pain they prescribed a dose of castor oil as well as quote, demulcent drinks don't worry i had to look up that word as well demulcent is defined by merriam-webster as quote, soothing and quote, as an adjective applies to the soothing nature of some medicine when the doctors checked in at two that afternoon they found that harrison had slept for most of the day and had only taken a little of the demulcents while he had taken none of the castor oil again there were some not right bodily functions and miller noted that he quote, breathes heavily when lying on his back and says he is not refreshed by his sleep tongue dry brown and poignant thirst great by eight p m there was quote, the expectoration of pinkish mucus so not great but not at the point where they thought death was imminent and indeed at the morning check-in on the thirtieth harrison's condition was improving though the constipation was back and harrison was quote, complaining of uneasiness from distension the doctors prescribed more medicine and by the evening the constipation was gone but the pendulum had swung too far in the other direction and now the president was feeling weakened more medicine was prescribed along with opium and quote, a little weak brandy toddy on the 31st he began to cough up quote, mucus tinged with blood miller changed his prescription from laxative pills to serpentaria or virginia snakeweed root and seneca enemas when harrison's fever returned that day it was back to the compound containing mercury as well as spirits of ammonia and some other medicines that night was apparently a good one for harrison in terms of sleeping but the doctors found that quote, his perspiration was too free though warm feels debilitated by it and miller ordered for all of the medicines to be discontinued and replaced by quote, cordial nourishment and drinks that was apparently not the winning formula as by one thirty that afternoon harrison was quote, incoherent muttering while dozing picking at the bedclothes and burying his chest it seems that this was the oh crud moment for dr miller as he had two more doctors called in to go over the case meanwhile others were starting to take notice 
Secretary of State Webster decided that the condition warranted alerting the Vice President, John Tyler, who longtime listeners to this program will remember, had hightailed it back to his home in Tidewater, Virginia, shortly after the inauguration. Meanwhile, the Washington Globe runs a story on Harrison's ill health. This seems unthinkable in the 21st century, where every movement of the president is tracked by the press. But though Harrison had not been seen in public in several days, the general populace, even of Washington, D.C., was by and large unaware that anything was wrong. Now, it might have been different had this been later in his term, when he had more regimented routines and had interacted with more of the locals. But Harrison had only moved in a few weeks back. Residents of D.C. were still in the getting-to-know-you phase of their relationship with the ninth president. Meanwhile, back at the White House, a team of doctors came up with a course of action, but around 8 that evening, Harrison, quote, was seized with return of pain in the side, which was readily relieved by the application of warm poultices over the blistered surface and Granville's lotion along the spine. It then attacked him over the right brow. The lotion relieved it instantly, but it returned to the side. One has the image of a whack-a-mole-esque scene where a doctor is moving from the side to the brow, then to the side again, trying to keep this pain down. Then a new ache developed, a, quote, soreness and cramp in the gastrocemus muscle, which were removed by frictions or massage. By 10 p.m., Harrison, quote, became restless, moans a good deal, skin moist and warm, has taken a little nourishment. Though the president, quote, passed a comfortable night, most of the same symptoms remained on April 2nd. The patient said, quote, he does not feel as well as he has done, though he makes no particular complaint, and the doctors, quote, considered him rather worse. More laudanum was taken along with, quote, some beef tea and a weak brandy toddy. April 3rd brought another doctor on the team, Dr. Alexander, who agreed with all of his colleagues, and the treatment continued along the same lines as it had. He had an evacuation during the night, quote, which did not weaken him, and though he was regularly muttering in his sleep at this point, when he awoke, quote, his mind was perfectly clear. Though Harrison insisted in the morning, quote, that he felt much better, the afternoon would see him go down quickly. Starting at 2 p.m., his situation deteriorated hour by hour. He became increasingly incoherent, while more evacuations weakened him. Dr. Miller and the medical team met at 6 p.m. and concluded that, quote, we consider the case hopeless. By this point, Harrison's pulse was weakening, and his, quote, extremities were blue and cold. They kept trying to treat him, but at some point in the 8 o'clock hour, he spoke his last words, reported to be, quote, Sir, I wish you to understand the true principles of government. I wish them carried out. I ask nothing more. He went unconscious by quarter till nine and languished for a few more hours until passing away at half-past midnight on April 4, 1841. William Henry Harrison was 68 years old and had been president for 30 going on 31 days. The tragedy was truly without precedent in the young nation, but the wheels of administration quickly kicked into gear to ensure the continuation of government. The cabinet members present in Washington, D.C. met right after Harrison's death, and drafted an official statement to release to the public, while Secretary of State Webster sent his son Fletcher, along with Robert Beale, doorkeeper of the U.S. Senate, to Virginia to inform Tyler of Harrison's death. Meanwhile, Alexander Hunter, Marshal of the District of Columbia and a local merchant, was given the task of organizing the funeral arrangements. There was little precedent for Hunter to draw from in making the arrangements. There had been members of Congress that had died in office, and presidential families had suffered losses during their time in the nation's capital. 
However, more was needed than black armbands and a simple ceremony. Hunter got an upholsterer to work on mourning ornaments, which ultimately used up every last scrap of black material in the D.C. area, and as more was needed, they started dyeing other material. Hunter arranged for Harrison's body to be dressed and prepared, as well as for a three-layer coffin, with each layer having a glass pane so that folks could see Harrison's face. The inner mahogany coffin would be used for the funeral, then would be placed in the larger walnut coffin, and finally in a third lead coffin. The White House exterior was decorated in black, and, quote, judging by the large amount of yardage listed in his bill, Claggett, now, I'm not really sure who this is, but I'm assuming a worker at the White House, Claggett probably also did the drapery of the staterooms, where the chandeliers and mirrors, and probably the portraits, were either trimmed or covered entirely in black. On April 7th, the funeral was held for Harrison at the White House. It was described as a simple ceremony, and afterwards Harrison's body was loaded into a funeral car while, quote, the Marine Band played dirges, and the crowd looked on in silence. In a procession, the body was taken to the Congressional Cemetery to be stored in a tomb until arrangements could be made to transport it back to North Bend, Ohio, for a final interment. Besides his influence on electioneering, Harrison's greatest mark on the presidency was in his funeral arrangements, which have served as the precedent for arrangements for presidents after Harrison who have had the misfortune of dying in office. The nation's newspapers, for the most part, put black borders on their issues immediately following the news of Harrison's death, and Washington remained in mourning for the customary period of time. However, eventually, the black crepe was taken down, the nation came out of mourning, and life went on. Dr. Thomas Miller published his account of Harrison's death in the June 2nd issue of the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, and it wasn't long before the treatment and conclusions reached were questioned. Indeed, in the August 18th issue, seven and a half pages of the journal are devoted to a refutation of Miller's account. The anonymous writer begins by taking issue with, quote, the evident yielding of the practitioner to the patient, as, quote, the subsequent treatment is so much in accordance with these, Harrison's, opinions of his constitutional peculiarities, that it has the appearance of being somewhat influenced by it. Basically, the author feels that Miller may have been too influenced by Harrison's opinions, rather than reaching diagnoses using his own senses. As the author states, quote, the business of the physician is to judge, to decide, and then to act. And though he should avail himself of all the information and the power of the patient to afford, and give it the consideration it is worth, his, i.e. the physician's, decision is arbitrary and final. He is not bound to consult the wishes or suit his opinion to that of the patient. Next, the author criticizes the various prescriptions given to Harrison in the course of treatment. Quote, in glancing the eye over the report, we cannot see the particular object of the treatment unless it was to affect the system with mercurials. Mm-mm, those good old mercurials. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Continuing on, quote, But if such were the case, it does not seem to have been consistently carried out, for they were discontinued occasionally and not uniformly so combined or in such quantities as to have expedited that effect. In fact, the treatment seems to have had no decided character, to have been purely symptomatic, directed merely to the relief of the momentary difficulty and not to the subjection of the disease. Basically, the author felt it to be the equivalent of giving someone an aspirin for a headache that they were suffering due to a cerebral hemorrhage. 
the treatment wasn't appropriate to cure the underlying cause of the symptoms, in the author's opinion. The author also criticizes the final pronouncement of Harrison's illness as pneumonia, but in actuality, someone had already beaten him to it, namely, Dr. Miller himself. Miller, in his article, asserts that, quote, it will be seen that the disease was not viewed as a case of pure pneumonia, but as this was the most palpable affection, the term pneumonia afforded a succinct and intelligible answer to the innumerable questions as to the nature of the attack. So, to put it in succinct terms, as it seems Dr. Miller was fond of doing, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then we'll say it's a duck, even if we know that it's not really a duck. 19th century medicine at its finest, folks. The author of the August article draws into the details of Miller's report for critique. Quote, there's the most marked minuteness in certain portions of the report, particularly about details very unimportant. Believe me, dear listeners, you should be glad that I spared you some of the descriptions of Harrison's evacuations. The author continues, quote, while the condition of the lungs is passed over with a simple expression, quote, on examination was satisfied that the lower lobe of the right lung was the seat of pneumonia. Nothing more is mentioned. The reasons of this opinion the sounds of the chest, other physical signs, and the progress of the affection in the lungs are not stated, the whole subject being passed aside, with the exception of the occasional mention of the cough and expectoration. He questions a couple of other finer points before arriving at Miller's diagnosis of the cause of death to have been an impure form of pneumonia. The author calls this, quote, an answer not in accordance with the fact, we should suppose, is neither succinct nor intelligible, properly speaking, Although the treatment of the case was not such as is usually pursued pneumonia, and its termination unlike its ordinary form, the change of its name seems rather an afterthought, and appears to be a lame apology, a mere attempt to disarm criticism. Based on the symptoms described, the author postulates that Harrison died of, quote, a case of insidious pneumonia, which he labels as, quote, pneumonia typhoides, or, as we know it today, typhoid fever. He then follows with a text from, quote, a popular author, who I have not yet identified, that goes into some detail about pneumonia, and in particular the typhoid variety, with the popular author prescribing the one thing that Miller and his colleagues failed to do, namely, bleeding. After the longer account concludes, a smaller piece appears in the same issue which questions even the authorship of Miller's account, asserting that, quote, very many conceive that the scientific supervision of a medical gentleman in Philadelphia was thought quite necessary to give completeness to a report which had been roughed out at Washington, but was thus finished according to modern requirements of literature and science. Some people, it is well known, are not satisfied with relating a discreditable fact, without giving it some important additions which might not be improbable. Hence the suggestion that the prescriptions in the medical report were constructed cautiously under the vigilant supervision of a scholar some time after the death of this illustrious patient. Shoddy treatment or a cover-up, or both? Take your pick in this interpretation. So, what happened after this challenge to Miller's diagnosis, treatment, and possible cover-up came to public light? Well, nothing so far as I found. I know this is hard for my 21st century listeners to believe, but there was neither the investigative journalism nor the professional scrutiny at the time that would have the death of a president in the modern era under even the most by-the-book circumstances lead to congressional investigations, special committees, and months and months of reports in news media and professional journals. 
The fact of the matter was that even if someone saw the article in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, which, to be fair, was not that likely, Congress was too busy in August dealing with the new president and his veto of the proposed new Bank of the United States. Who cares about a dead president when you've got a live one running amok? No, the story was pneumonia, and at some point along the line, someone linked it to the inauguration and is not wearing a coat on a cold, rainy day. That's how we end up in the present day with a song parodying the Hamilton musical entitled Harrison that says that he should have put on his coat like his wife told him. The wife who was still in North Bend for the entire presidency. How does a privileged white kid born in the high mid-18th century to land in gentry and a prominent, dominant delegate and East Virginia resident grow up to be the country's ninth president? It's evident the man was meant to be a landholder, but as he got older, he got a lot bolder, put a musket on his shoulder, wrote his mother, and he told her, I'm headed to Ohio, I'm gonna be a soldier. In the battles with Tecumseh makes a name for himself, then in the war of 1812 beats the Brits as well, sits for a spell as a congressman before he's appointed as the governor of Northwest Territory. He could have retired in Ohio, but his bio wasn't done, commander-in-chief was his ambition, everyone wanted him to run, it was time to pick a new man. Typical new man, you could be the chosen one. Who are you, son? William Henry Harrison. They call me William Henry Harrison. And I really shouldn't tarry, son. I've got plans. I've got plans. Inauguration day came fast. It was overcast. Chilly wind was blowing willy-nilly. But it didn't bother Billy. His wife said, don't be silly, Billy. Do as you're told. Wear your overcoat and hat or you will catch your death of cold. But our hero didn't listen and without further objection, his speech went on for hours. He didn't wear protection, ignored his wife's direction, came down with an infection and bit it four weeks later. What a waste of an election. William Henry Harrison, William Henry Harrison, he will hold a special place for you. He said the shortest term as president America's known, yet he didn't listen to your wife and so you died of pneumonia. Me, I fought with him. Me, I doctored him. Me, I married him. Me, I loved him. Me, I'm the bad germ that got him. <laughs> and there's really no comparison to any other show. What's his name again? William Henry Harrison. Don't worry, as loath as I am to continue to spread such inaccuracies, I'll put a link to the YouTube video on Facebook, as well as the show notes. Harrison has been mocked and ridiculed for the last century and three quarters. But thankfully, the story does not stop there. In 2014, James McHugh and Philip A. McCoyack published an article in the professional journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, which took a fresh look at Miller's account and, assuming it to be an accurate account of Harrison's symptoms, examined it through the lens of 21st century medical knowledge. While our anonymous critic had assumed that Dr. Miller's lack of mention of Harrison's pulmonary functions to be either shoddy reporting or poor diagnosis, McHugh and McCoyack assert that it may have been because it wasn't a key part of Harrison's ailment. They write, quote, Although Harrison's lungs were one of the targets of the infection that took his life, his pulmonary symptoms were not as severe as his gastrointestinal distress, nor were they progressive. This, to them, was key. Quote, 
Given the dominance of Harrison's gastrointestinal signs and symptoms, it is more likely that he died of a gastrointestinal infection, in particular enteric fever, with secondary involvement of the lungs, than of a pulmonary infection with secondary involvement of the liver and intestine. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself, what is enteric fever? McHugh and McCoyack explain that it's, quote, a severe systemic illness caused by disseminated infection with Salmonella typhi, or S. paratyphi. That's right, folks. Enteric or typhoid fever, as our anonymous author diagnosed in August 1841, was what McHugh and McCoyack diagnosed in 2014 as Harrison's cause of death. Unlike the anonymous author, the 21st century second opinion suggests that Dr. Miller was on the right track in his focus on gastrointestinal symptoms, and note that, quote, in 1841 there was no effective treatment for enteric fever. They give Miller credit for not bleeding Harrison, quote, as was the standard treatment for pneumonia at the time, though they do assert that Miller followed standard practice at the time in his treatment of Harrison. McHugh and McCoyack note that, quote, the opium that Miller gave him, Harrison, was especially dangerous and might have converted a serious illness into a fatal one. Enemas are also potentially dangerous in such patients because they can cause an inflamed terminal ileum to perforate. Thus, not only was his ailment quite serious and untreatable at the time, the medical treatment, rather than helping him, might have tipped the scales enough to do Harrison in. So how in the world did Harrison get typhoid fever anyway? McHugh and McCoyack, using evidence from the D.C. Geographic Information System and historical records, provide an answer to that as well. Quote, there is ample reason to conclude that Harrison's move into the White House placed him at particular risk for contracting enteric fever. In 1841, the nation's capital had no sewer system, nor, for that matter, did any other American city. Until 1850, sewage from nearby buildings simply flowed into public grounds a short distance from the White House, where it stagnated and formed a marsh. The White House water supply was situated just seven blocks below a repository for night soil, otherwise known as human refuse, that was hauled there each day from the city at government expense. Harrison's history of dyspepsia also potentially heightened his risk of infection by enteropathologic bacteria that might have found their way from Washington's night soil depository into the White House water supply. In layman's terms, poor sewage practices led to a tainted water supply, which, with Harrison's pre-existing gastrointestinal problems, made him prone to infection. McHugh and McCoyack also note the sudden deaths of James K. Polk shortly after leading office, and Zachary Taylor during his term of office in the decade after Harrison's death, as possibly attributable, at least in part, to the same infection. Whether he wore his coat or not at the inauguration, it seems that Harrison would likely have fallen ill and died on April 4th, 1841 anyway. So what do we take away from this? Certainly, Harrison's death provides a cautionary tale of the importance of monitoring environmental conditions and working to ensure clean drinking water. It also shows that, though something is repeated time and again by historians and in popular culture, it doesn't necessarily make it true, and it's important for all of us to continue to search for new sources of information and weigh them in a scholarly manner in order to fully understand what happened at any given moment in history, even if your results differ from the common story. For me, though, his death has a more personal message. Like with many folks, we have dreams and ambitions and sometimes spend years and decades to work to achieve them. Even if we make it there, things may not turn out quite how we intended, for better or for worse. However, that doesn't diminish the importance of trying. 
Though Harrison's life and presidency were cut tragically short, it still had meaning and provides us with much insight. Through both his successes and failures, through his admirable qualities as well as his questionable decisions and shortcomings, Harrison was a person just like any of us, trying to do the best he could in the circumstances he found himself in. He had good times and bad. He experienced great joy and deep sorrow. His death reminds me to be ever humble and grateful for what we have, and to appreciate both what is ours to control and what is outside of our control. His death reminds me of how I should live. A final note about all of this. I wanted to mention that the music at the beginning of this episode was Taps, which now is a key feature at military funerals. It would not, however, have been played at Harrison's funeral, mainly because it was not yet actually composed. It was derived from an earlier bugle call known as Tattoo, but not until the 1860s. Besides the fact that it is readily identifiable to modern audiences, there are two other key reasons why it was selected, after much deliberation by Andrew and myself, to be included. First is the fact that I can't find a source that actually details what songs were played at Harrison's funeral. The Marine Band was there, as well as possibly other bands. But despite the level of detail that the Niles Weekly Register, a prominent paper at the time, goes into about the funeral arrangements in its April 10th issue, seriously, there's a diagram about the positioning of the pallbearers. The music gets short shrift, and all we know is that it was, quote, excellent mournful airs. The other reason that Taps was chosen, though, is because when it was composed in the 1860s, it was composed at Berkeley Plantation. That's right, Harrison's Berkeley. When Union forces landed in 1862, General Daniel Butterfield established his camp at Berkeley, or Harrison's Landing, as it was called. In July 1862, he decided that he didn't like the traditional call for lights out, and thus developed Taps as an alternative. It was then used for a military funeral for the first time during the Peninsular Campaign, and by 1891 was noted in the U.S. Army Infantry Drill Regulations as mandatory for use at military funeral ceremonies. Thus, this one song encapsulates so much of Harrison's life, and, though only tangentially related to the man, speaks to what I believe he would want for his legacy. Well, dear friends, we've made it through the life of Harrison from beginning to end. But this is not the end of the Harrison podcast, not by a long shot. I have many more episodes in store exploring new aspects of Harrison's life and times, as well as taking a closer look at some of the figures who have come up often in our narrative series, along with others who haven't. We'll continue on next time with an examination of the westward expansion movement as it stood in 1840 and what it meant for Harrison's presidency as well as the future of the nation. Until then, I welcome any questions or comments you may have. You can send them via email to harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or reach out via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Source information as well as supplementary materials and past episodes can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. This episode, along with the previous two, could not have come together without the able audio editing assistance of Andrew Fonkook. If you, like me, can use his assistance with your next audio project, please reach out to him via his email, andrew at fonkook, that's p-f-a-n-n-k-u-c-h-e dot com. Working with Andrew has given me new ideas for both the podcast as well as my other podcast, The Presidencies of the United States 
and you'll be able to reap the benefits of this collaboration. Finally, past episodes of the podcast are available on the blog, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher, if you're not listening from there already. I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a few moments and provide the podcast with a review on iTunes. I want to work in the next year to promote the podcast, and those reviews help in visibility on iTunes. Thank you so very much for listening, and take care until next time, friends.